0: Amen. You may be seated. Luke 17, if you have your Bible or the text is on page 8 in your bulletin. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the ones for whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and sit down at at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you're commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they'll say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord, and guide us now by the Spirit through it, we pray, our Lord, as we, as we listen, in Jesus' good name, amen. So look at verse 11, probably the, most, the least interesting verse in the text, but why is it there? On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Why does Luke give us these signposts throughout his gospel? Well, you may remember that Luke is taking us on a journey with Jesus, It's a very long journey. It takes up most of the gospel from chapter 9 to chapter 19. And while this may seem like it's kind of a meandering journey in some ways, in terms of focus, this journey is straight as an arrow. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. The king, God in flesh, he is coming to his royal city. And you know the story, how it ends. When he arrives there, his enemies are going to reject his rightful claim as king. They're going to reject his claim to the throne, and they're going to execute him. And it's going to leave us with a very painful question, and that is, so what's going to become of Jesus' followers? All these poor saps who thought he was, you know, the son of David, the Messiah, now he's dead. But then the story's going to get really weird. It's going to get very interesting, because Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And now we have a living king on the other side of the grave, and now there's going to be a very different question. So now what's going to become of his enemies? Now that the king is back. That's the drama we're heading toward. But here... In verse 11, we actually turn the last corner, and it's kind of like Jerusalem now is really coming into view. And I'd like you to notice in this chapter that both before and after that turn in the road, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but there's a focus shift that's important in this verse. Because before the turn, Jesus is talking to his disciples about their preparation for service in his kingdom. We're going to talk about that for a minute. And then after the turn, the focus really does shift to this coming confrontation with his enemies. So first preparation, and then confrontation. And I want to take a few moments just with verses 1 through 10 and just notice what Jesus says to his disciples about their ongoing preparation. Because these disciples are in school. They've been in school with Jesus since he first preached to them back in chapter 6. And why are they in school? Why are they apprenticing with Jesus? They're in school because it is not easy to become the kind of people through whom God manifests his own goodness in the world. Let me say that again. It is not easy to become the kind of people through whom God manifests his own goodness in the world. I might say it again. It is not easy to become the kind of people through whom God manifests his own goodness in the world. That is a high calling. It's easier to be a taker you kind of see this with the crowds. I mean, who, who doesn't want you know, all the good stuff Jesus gives? But being with him, becoming like him, being changed, that's different. It's actually easier to be religious. You see this with the Pharisees, so full of our own rightness. You know, we, we know the truth, we do the right stuff, and after a while, we're so full of ourselves with that that our hearts, crazily enough, as religious people, they actually get hard against God. I, I just get to the point where I don't think God I need God to change me anymore. I'm good. And that hardens my heart towards other people, too, because if I think I'm good before God, I'm going to start looking down on other people. And so it's easier to be religious than to become this kind of person through whom God can show his goodness in the world. And so with immense love for these disciples, the master with whom they're in school says to them in verse 3, y'all pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to the kind of people you're becoming. And beloved, you and I are in school, too. I hope so. Because it's easy to warm pews and kind of not really be dialed into this. You and I are in school too. We're disciples. We're apprentices of Jesus. And so what he says to these disciples, he says to us too. And he calls us, as you notice, go, as it goes on, he calls us to become very, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be very intentional, be very serious, very focused about some things, to really pay attention to a few things. I like to just notice what he says we're to pay attention to as we're thinking about becoming the kind of people God can use in the world. One thing that disciples of Jesus are very intentional and serious about, they're really paying attention to it, is avoiding scandals. Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 1, Scandala in the Greek, they're going to happen. What are skandala? What are scandals? Well, they are things that make other people fall. They make other people trip up morally or trip up, doctrinally or spiritually anything that is pulling somebody towards sin or pushing them away from what is good that's tripping them it's causing them to stumble and as a disciple of Jesus I'm with Jesus he came to save sinners and so as I'm thinking about my life paying attention to myself I really do not want to be in any way the kind of person who derails other people morally or spiritually I'm just paying attention to that I don't want other people to be tripping and falling morally or spiritually because they've been with me, especially if they're in any kind of position of looking up to me. You know, little ones, as it were, looking at my life. I'm just paying attention to what I say and what I do, how I act, what I post. I'm watching kind of the visible priorities of my life. Like when people look at Ben Miller's life, what do they see are my visible priorities? And I'm thinking about that stuff because I don't want to give anybody at any time the impression that sinning against God is okay. I don't want to give people the impression in my visible life and what I say and do that somehow sexual impurity is okay. We've had far too much of that from religious leaders, right? I don't, want to, I don't want, as I'm like living my life, to give people the impression that the pornographying of the body is okay, even as I post stuff online. I don't want people to watch my life and get the impression that bitterness is, is just fine. You know, it's kind of normal to be bitter. That wrath, you know, what are you going to do? It's no big deal. I don't want people to look at my life and see that contentiousness and divisiveness, you know, Whatever. Look, the the pastor does it, that follower of Jesus does it, it must be fine. I don't don't want people getting that impression. I don't want people to get the impression that, you know, breaking Sabbath is just fine, and that living materialistically, that my whole life is about money and all the prestigious stuff money can buy. I don't want people looking at my life and saying, that's the life, because see, there's a Jesus follower, that's what he's doing. I think it's actually more than this. Because, you know, a lot of this, we can do bad stuff and and show people, give people the wrong message that way, but sometimes what we don't do, I don't want people looking at my life as a follower of Jesus and coming to think that apathy is just fine, that being lukewarm is just fine. I don't want people to look at my life as a follower of Jesus and get the impression that Jesus and his body and his kingdom, they're boring they're really not worth, like, zeal and serious effort. Can I ask you guys a question? I look at your lives. Please, please hear this with immense love. I do sometimes look at some of you and I wonder, would anyone ever catch, a, catch fire for Jesus being around you? I'm not asking that accusingly. I'm just asking this to search of hearts. Is there enough fire for Jesus in your life? Like you are on fire about worshiping Jesus. You're on fire about serving him. You're on fire about doing good works in his name. You are thinking about him. You are pursuing his will for your life. And that fire is hot enough it could throw some sparks. Or because people spend a lot of time around our lives and they would get the impression that Jesus is just not that big a deal. I don't want to have that kind of scandal on my life because I love Jesus and I love people. That's the heart of a disciple. He says something else. Pay attention to yourselves. Be watchful about avoiding scandal. We're also very serious as Jesus' people about showing mercy. Because he goes on to say something kind of shocking you know, about you know, sin and repentance and forgiving. And what he describes there in verses three and four, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, and so on. This is, this is a person, this is a community of, of Jesus' people where we are relationally wide awake. We're not just showing up and, you know, kind of warm hellos and then we just take our leave on Sundays. Jesus says, I, I want you guys to pay attention to yourselves. Care enough to rebuke. If you see, now this, is, this is not always a fun church to be in. You see somebody sinning, rebuke him. We don't let sin just fester in the body of Christ and in, in, in the community of disciples because, because we love Jesus and we love each other. We name it. We, 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 can, we can call it out in love. We can address it. Brother, sister, you know, what's with this? And then Jesus says, if your brother repents, forgive him. It's not like we're hard on each other. If there's a slightest turn, we're preaching grace to each other. Brother, sister, your sins are forgiven because Jesus died for them. And let's live well together now. We preach grace to repentance. And we reconcile because Jesus says, if you're on the receiving end of this sin, so, you know, maybe a brother sins and it's not against me and I rebuke and he repents and I preach grace to him. What if it's against me? Well, Jesus really kind of ups the ante here. He says, if you're on the receiving end of your brother's sin and he repents to you seven times in a row, you forgive him every single time. i got to tell you what I'm thinking by time four or five. I'm thinking he's just not serious. Jesus says, you just keep on forgiving because we are serious about showing mercy because we're with Jesus. We're with the God who came and took flesh and died for us. We're serious about showing mercy. Pay attention to yourselves. And we're at, we pay attention, thirdly, to trusting God. Because the apostles, in a way, have kind of a sensible response in verse 5. They say, Lord, you need to up our faith. (laughs) If you're going to be a people with the kind of moral seriousness and relational seriousness that Jesus has just talked about, you're going to be opposed. There's going to be pushback from your own heart, from other people. You know, people don't always like being rebuked. (laughs) They don't like speaking a word of truth. And certainly from the watching world, that just doesn't really respect God or you know, the lordship of Jesus and, and, and they're kind of looking for Christians to fall because that would be a great scandal. And so there's, you put yourself in this position of like, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna do what he wants. I'm gonna be morally and relationally serious before him. It's vulnerable. It puts you in a position where you can end up really looking like a fool in the eyes of many people. And if you're gonna pursue righteousness like that with the, the right heart, with a gracious spirit, but with seriousness before the Lord, and you're gonna love like that, your heart is gonna have to be settled on God. I mean, you're going to have to know and rest in the fact God loves me. And so I don't fear the frowns of man. You're going to have to know and be settled in the fact that as I'm doing what is right before the Lord, pleasing Him no matter what the cost, you're going to have to know that He is not just your Father. Jesus is Lord for you that he rules over all things. All the circumstances of your life are under his control and he will ultimately judge you and all people and he will set all things right and you just have to entrust a lot of things to him. And say, I'm gonna do the right thing, Lord, but a lot of the judgment's gonna have to be yours. You gotta know that he'll, he, will, he will be for you in judgment. And Jesus responds to his apostles here and he says, if you guys had any faith at all, I mean a mustard seed worth of faith, any confidence at all, if you have any confidence at all that God is your father and that I'm your king, If you really know that, you don't have to have a lot of faith. If you have any faith at all, yes, God is my Father. He'll take care of me. Jesus is my King. He's my Lord. He's my judge. He's got it. And Jesus says, and you can look at the mightiest, most rooted opposition to my kingdom. You know, the mulberry tree here might be a picture of Israel in opposition to Jesus. It might be a picture of the Roman Empire and this whole kind of exile that God's people are in at that time. But it's this picture of opposition, the wicked spreading themselves like a great tree, Jesus says, if you know who God is, you can look at the biggest, baddest opposition to my kingdom, and you can just say, God, rise up and defend your cause. Take that opposition and throw it into the heart of the sea, and you can be absolutely confident. It'll come. God will vindicate those who trust in him. So we're serious about avoiding scandal, showing mercy, trusting God, and the last thing Jesus says we're serious about is his people in this school. We're serious about willing service. Because this is kind of a sobering little story that Jesus, he kind of asks a question in a story form about these servants coming in after a long day in the field and the master says, you know, dress yourself and take care of me. You know, as Jesus people, as disciples of our Lord, strictly speaking, beloved, there's really no such thing as me time. If I really know who Jesus is, there's no such thing ultimately as me time. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not Pharaoh. He's not making us make bricks without straw. He's not a harsh taskmaster. There's all kinds of deep rest with our Lord. There are lots of pleasures we enjoy in serving him. But there is, if you know who Jesus is, there is never a single moment in your life when you can say, you know what, Jesus, kind of, now you owe me. You really can't ask anything more of me, Lord. This little square inch of my life over here, that, that that's that's free from your claims. You know, I've kind of earned it. <laughs> A little break here. You know, you can just kind of leave me alone here. That, that, that's, that, that doesn't exist. And the crazy thing about serving Jesus as the Lord is that he is so gracious and he is so good to us. Back in chapter 12, this is wild, he actually says he's literally gonna do what this Lord will not. He says to his servants, when I show up to, to, to you know, bring you to account, I will sit down, gird myself, and I will serve you at the table. The Lord, and he does this in John's gospel, doesn't he? He literally takes a towel and he washes the feet of his disciples. And Jesus is like that. He's that kind of Lord. He is so good to us. He is so gracious to us. He actually really humbles himself in ministering to us so much that we can very easily kind of get the mental roles reversed. Somehow in my mind, Jesus should be serving me. I forget I'm the servant and he is the Lord. I am bought with a price. So are you, all of you. You and I are owned. My whole life was bought with the blood of Jesus. That means my life is at his disposal all the time. He's never asking too much of me, no matter what he asks. And so as I'm in the community of God's people and I'm serving in the world and I'm seeking to watch over my moral life and I'm seeking to show love and mercy and I'm seeking to trust God as I do all of that, man, I am not looking to do the bare minimum and then bounce and go serve myself. I am not at any point expecting, because I've done so much and I've done so well, I'm not expecting Jesus now to finally just get on board with my own program for self-fulfillment. He is the Lord. I serve at his good pleasure. There'll be all kinds of times to rest and enjoy things under Jesus' kingship, but nothing for a disciple of Jesus, nothing takes precedence over serving him, pleasing him, attending to my Lord. And so Jesus is kind of concluding a whole bunch of schooling here, just kind of wrapping up with some major points. Avoiding scandal, showing mercy, trusting God, willing service. But then they turn the corner in the road. And now the kind of looming confrontation. So the disciples have got some schooling, and now we're looking down the road. There's Jerusalem. And after this turn in the road, Jesus shows Luke shows us Jesus having two encounters on the road. And I think these two encounters, the focus kind of shifts now from the disciples' And and these two encounters with the leper and the Pharisees, they kind of show us how Jesus has been received so far in wider Israel. Beyond the handful of his disciples, like what's been the reception kind of out there beyond the disciples? And I think we'd have to say from these two uh, encounters, it's it's kind of bleak. But in both of these encounters, what we're going to see is they're not about the disciples, but they have a message. Both of these encounters have a message for the disciples. A couple more things to pay attention to. And notice in the first encounter with the leper, many are blessed, but only a Samaritan is grateful. You you see the story, we just read it. You'll remember in chapter 5, we talked about this, leprosy could be any number of different skin diseases. And these skin diseases in Israel barred people from being with God and his people. These disfiguring uh, skin diseases, you couldn't be in the presence of God or his people because under the law of moses these kind of disfiguring diseases they were an emblem a kind of symbol of all the ways that sin has damaged and distorted god's creation death being the ultimate thing that distorts and and damages god's creation damages his image in human beings and those those marks of damage and distortion can't be with God because God is life and only the perfect can live with him. And so these lepers are cast out of the the holy people and the community. They their cry here is not just for physical healing. I mean, it's not fun being having this ugly disfigurement, but they're not just crying for healing. They're crying to be brought back in. They they want to be included with God and his people again. And you notice here that Jesus as we've seen all through the gospel, he just he willingly does it. There's not even a hesitation. And he doesn't, as I said, just restore the damage to their skin. He offers them inclusion. He gives them a way back in to be with God and his people. That's that's what Jesus does as our Savior. And yet when that is done and they're healed, I mean, God knows how many years they've been suffering with this lonely life. Only a fractional remnant. A tithe, if you like. A 10%. A foreigner at that. a, A Samaritan. He's the only one who gets it. The rest went away with their skin disease taken care of. This is the only one who actually understands what's going on here. He understands what this means is that this Jesus is God's Messiah. He's the son of God and he comes back and he falls on his face and he worships and he gives thanks to Jesus because he understands you are God's Messiah. That is why I am well and I thank you as God for healing me. But the other nine go their way and they're a lot like all, all the rest of Israel, aren't they? So much of Israel, they just want a kingdom. They don't want a king. They want all the blessings of Jesus, they don't want a king. And it's not really so different in our world today, is it? You know, you and I can look around at the world, and if if people acknowledge God at all for all of his blessings, it's usually a pretty simple thing of God bless us, but don't rule us. You know, give us more, kind of stay out of our business. And it's easy to look out at the world and see that kind of ingratitude and, and just kind of refusing to acknowledge who God is and who Jesus really is. But there is something here that the disciples and we can pay attention to. Because I was thinking about this leper, thinking about the other nine. Is there a message here for disciples? We can see the ingratitude in the world. We can look out at the world and see all the ways that people are blessed by God. He's feeding them, giving them breath, giving, keeping their hearts beating in their chests, pouring out, I mean, you know, the sun, the rain, so many blessings, and they just will not thank him, will not acknowledge that he's God. But I was thinking about this. Pay attention to yourselves. Is there really that much more gratitude in the church? Is there really that much more gratitude in the church? I was thinking about this, and I'm asking myself as I ask you. Pay attention to yourselves, beloved. Are God's blessings in your life really bringing you closer to him? I mean, I know you enjoy the blessings, so do I, but are they actually bringing you closer to him? Is your heart more drawn to Jesus because of these blessings? Do you find that after God has blessed you, you have a lot more just peace in God? Like the blessing's good, but it just reminds you, you're my my provider, you're my rock, and you just have more security in him. The kind of peace and security as you're loved by him, and your heart is drawn to him through those blessings, the kind of peace and security that will stay and stick, even if he takes the blessing away, because you still have him. Is that happening in you as God blesses you? Do you find that in seasons of tremendous blessing in your life, you have more humility? You're less full of yourself, more full of Jesus? There's more contentment, more real joy in the Lord, more celebrating? Is there less grumbling, less anxiety, because you're just blessed by the Lord? I thought about this question. I was thinking about this leper. Do you thank God every single day of your life for the simple fact that he saved you from sin and death? I mean, we can sit here and assume we all do that because we're Christians. Do you actually consciously do that? Is it part of your routine to just stop and every day, thank you, God, for Jesus saving me, that he offered to you the obedience that you deserve, and he suffered the death that I deserve. I'm just, I'm thanking you, God. I am worshiping you for that. Is that part of our routine? It's worth thinking about. Pay attention to ourselves. You know, are we teaching our children from their earliest days to not just feel gratitude, though they you know, that'd be wonderful, but whether or not they feel it, to verbalize, that's a gift from God. That's a mercy from God. Guys, what are we thankful for today? Is that part of the routine of life? I wonder if some communal practices might help us here. What if today's prayer meeting we devoted completely to Thanksgiving? Nobody's allowed to ask for anything. All we do is thank God the entire prayer meeting. That'd be useful. More gatherings in our homes, just to celebrate specific gifts and consciously together thank the Lord our God. You know, Vincent and Esther have been doing this for years with their home in Queens. Their entire neighborhood knows every September there's going to be a big old bash at their house because God gave them a home and they just rock on for an evening to the glory of God. I've preached at that service many times because verbalizing gratitude is a confession of faith and it brings life. And ingratitude shows we really have a lack of faith, Ingratitude is not connecting the blessing to the giver. That is the problem in wider Israel. And the second encounter, and we'll be done with this, the second encounter is even more sobering because it's not just that many are blessed, but only a Samaritan is thankful. Many have missed God's kingdom altogether, and judgment is coming. Many have missed the kingdom altogether, and judgment is coming. The Pharisees' question here is just astonishing, isn't it? In verse 20, they want to know when the kingdom of God is going to come. (laughs) I mean, You know who they're asking? The king. And they're so blinded by their fantasy of what this kingdom is going to look like, they cannot literally see what is in front of them. It's just kind of shocking. And Jesus goes on, after he tells them what they just can't seem to see, which is, oh, by the way, the kingdom is right here in the midst of you. (laughs) Jesus goes on to say that what this means, that they have missed the kingdom so badly. In verse 25, he tells them, What this means is that they, the Pharisees, and this entire generation, this faithless generation who have had the king among them and have not received the kingdom at all, they're going to reject their king and they're going to kill him. And Jesus goes on to say that that is going to not, by a long shot, be the end of the story. And he takes just a moment, after he talks about the fact that the king will be rejected and killed, he takes just a moment here to sketch a really frightening prediction of the wrath that is going to come on his enemies in this generation. Now we will not learn until chapter 21 that what he's describing and prophesying here is the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of the Romans some decades later. But for now, we'll have to wait till then for for those details, but for now he just pictures this wrath that is going to come on this generation. He pictures it just in general terms as something comparable to that world-ending flood in the days of Noah. You know, everyone's just living life, and this flood sweeps them away. Comparable to, to the destruction of Sodom in the days of Lot. It's going to be really fearful. And he uses the, the, word, the phrase son of man four times here, and, and of course you know what the son of man is from Daniel chapter 7. There, Daniel 7, the son of man comes to God, the ancient of days, and all the kingdoms of the world are given to him. And Jesus says that this coming destruction of Jesus' enemies in this generation, that is going to fulfill that Son of Man prophecy because in that time when his enemies are destroyed, the dominion of his enemies will be taken from them and given to him and given to the true Jews with circumcised hearts who follow their true Messiah. That is coming. And beloved, so will all of our Lord's enemies perish. We know that prophecy about the city of Jerusalem was fulfilled. And as surely as judgment came in Jesus' generation, judgment is coming in our our generation. It is coming. And I want to close with this, but it's hard to hear well in an age of memes. How many of you like memes? I have kind of a love hate relationship with memes. Do you know why? Because I've noticed something about memes. Every single thing under the sun whether it is stupid or serious, can be turned into a meme. And we can eventually meme everything into meaninglessness. Do you know how many memes there are of a preacher from the pulpit sort of pointing his finger and saying, judgment is coming. And you kind of, yeah, ha, 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 we've all seen that before. What a caricature. So it's hard to say this well in an age of memes because we think judgment is kind of funny like everything else. But beloved, meme it as we will. Judgment is coming. On the enemies of our Lord. It is coming either in this world or at the dawn of the age to come. It is coming. And if you're an enemy of Jesus, maybe just the ungrateful variety, maybe the openly hostile variety, this is very serious. And Jesus, now as then, even to these Pharisees, what he offers is that he bears the judgment for us, he takes the wrath and curse of God upon himself in our place. And he gives us his righteousness. And so he invites his enemies come and have peace with God through me, through my work. But judgment is coming. But you know, for disciples, here again, this is the last thing, something we can pay attention to, pay attention to yourselves. Because Jesus says to his disciples as he's talking about this coming storm of God's wrath that will fall upon his enemies, he says, I just want you guys to remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? Remember that story? God drags that family out of Sodom, and as the fire of God is falling on the city behind her, she looks back. And it's a sobering thing. She has already been brought out into this path that leads to salvation, and yet the reality is Sodom has her heart. Sodom has her heart. It's weird. Egypt had Israel's heart. Caesar has the Pharisees' heart. Oh, they're playing a whole religious game. They love Caesar more than the Christ. And Jesus is gently warning his disciples, when Jerusalem comes under my judgment, it'd be very easy for Jews who loved that city, had always associated God's promises with that physical city, hoped the son of David would come back to that city, as he did, to have their hearts in Jerusalem, pulled back to Jerusalem instead of their hearts with Jesus. Remember Lot's wife. And it might sound strange for me to encourage you guys as we think about Jesus teaching us here to pay attention to ourselves. It might seem strange for me to say to you that it's a great comfort and a great blessing for you and me as Christians, no matter how much our culture might mock it, to just meditate a lot on the judgment that is to come. Whether judgments of God in this world or at the dawn of the world to come, to really think about the fact Jesus always wins. He will put down every one of his enemies under his feet. Because the more we think about that and meditate on that and look forward to that and rest in that and even come to long for that, the more we're able to say from the heart, I am with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. What does it profit me if I gain the entire world, but I forfeit myself because I walk away from Jesus? I'm not even tempted by stuff that opposes Jesus. I don't want stuff that opposes Jesus. I don't want stuff in my heart that opposes him. I don't want to participate in things that are hostile to him or that ignore him or that mock him or that in any way try to put human beings on the throne. I don't want any part of any of that because, because Jesus, because his victory, because he's Lord, because judgment is coming. And the other thing is, I'm just really not all that anxious about stuff. I'm watching in the world because he's Lord and he's king and he's judge and he wins. So beloved, pay attention to yourselves. I hope this has been encouraging to you. It is not easy to become the sort of people through whom God manifests his own goodness in this world. But he has manifested his goodness in our king. And you and I are with him. And he loves us. And he's working in us. And so life is good. Let us pray. Father, work in us by your Son and Spirit that we will display the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness in your marvelous light. In Jesus we pray. Amen.